0: Good morning. It's good to hear, it. see you all here this morning. Happy Monday, um, and congratulations, Dr. Follett. It's a well-deserved, well-deserved award. So I have a question for all of you this morning. Um, just think for a second about how you would answer this. Um, here's a question: What are the things you would like to achieve by the age of 20, 25? Or, thirty, or for some of us here, we might have to push those, number back, those numbers back a couple of decades. But what are the things that you wish you have already accomplished? Or the things that you wish to accomplish? And then how does reflecting on those things make you feel? Achievement, accomplishment, often those words define our sense of significance. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I actually believe that questions of significance are part of the human experience because our drive to do something that matters, to make a difference, to do something important, is partially a God-given desire. We were created, after all, to work. Work is a good thing. But for many of us, we work in a tension between this desire to matter And the reality that most of us will end up spending our time doing very normal labor. And it's tough because we live in a culture that exalts, recognizes, and rewards those who do large things famously as fast as you can. It is everywhere we look. Yet the truth is most of us, not all of us, some of you go on to do really big things, but most of us will not do those big things according to what our culture uses to justify our significance. Not all of us will become the next tech guru, or an Olympic athlete, or a Nobel Prize winner, or a social media influencer, or choose, choose your thing. Life, for many of us, is... And will consist of slow and small and generally overlooked day-to-day, mundane, and ordinary work. So, what does it look like to sit in that tension faithfully, to acknowledge our desire for significance, and the sometimes discouraging place of feeling like our work doesn't matter? Let's look at John 2 together, because I think that holds some answers for us. I'm going to read from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This also happens to be one of my very favorite passages in Scripture. We know this story. It's the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him." So we know that John is one of four Gospel accounts, the, book that described the the books that describe the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, but the Gospel of John is very unique in that it is a master of foreshadowing. The entire book acts sort of like a pointing finger. Behind his narrative, he is always pointing to something bigger and better and new. And the challenge to his readers and hearers and actually to us, right, is to not be so focused on the actual finger that we don't look to what the finger is pointing at. Um, It's like if you have a puppy and you're trying to train your puppy how to fetch, right? And you throw the ball and the puppy just sits right right there looking at you. Right, You're trying to get your puppy to fetch, you're pointing at something for him to retrieve. We are often like puppies in this regard when we approach the book of John. We might be focusing on the hand instead of what the finger is actually pointing to. In this case, the finger is pointing to the fact that Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom and beginning to make things new. One theologian equates John's account to like a treasure hunt with careful and sometimes even cryptic clues or signs laid out for us to follow. And John specifically lays out seven signs for us to follow. And the whole point of these signs is that they are moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other. The chapter, this chapter, is actually a great example of this. So the author immediately paints the picture for us. Imagine yourself there, right? Three days after meeting and calling his first disciples, we see Jesus and his mother and his friends at a wedding in Cana. Now, weddings would normally involve the whole um, community, the whole city, and people from neighboring villages would come out to those weddings as well. It was a big deal. It was a huge festival. It was a, a gathering of great joy. And this is a signpost. This is the first little finger that's pointing at something beyond the actual event. I would suggest that John starts his book with a wedding, not because he lacked other examples to start with, but because, again, his hand is pointing to something, a far-off reality on the horizon. The Bible tells us that one day, God will make all things new, and there will be a feast, a party, a wedding. One day his work will be done, and creation will rejoice because all will be made new, and heaven and earth will once again become one. The bride, the people of God, will finally find her way into the groom's final embrace. The wedding at Cana its pointing us to consider the marriage supper of the Lamb. As described in Revelation 19, the setting of this story in John 2, it just begs us to look forward, to look beyond the initial obvious narrative to the grand meta meta narrative of Christ as the groom and his church as the bride. Um, I love weddings. You guys are in like wedding season, right? I remember being in college and thinking I need to find like another job just to pay for all the weddings I had to go to. So, if that feels real, it's real. But I love weddings. There's so much celebration and anticipation and joy and fun and good food and laughter and dancing. And even my husband, who doesn't normally dance, he will dance with me at weddings. Right? It seems that, regardless of the culture or the background or even sometimes religion, weddings are meant to be a celebration. And part of the celebratory nature of this wedding in John 2 involves the presence of wine. Now, wine. Again, John is actually referring to an Old Testament image that his original readers would pick up right away. Wine in the Old Testament drives home, it's driving home a theological point. In Old Testament passages, it was used, it was associated with restoration, with fellowship with God, with rebuilding, with having plenty, with experiencing God's favor and inhabiting the promised land. Wine was a symbol of abundance and blessing. So John's readers, they would have this expectation of wine. When wine shows up at the wedding, they're expecting that. They would get this symbolism. Once again, a signpost to where things are headed, to the final end of things, the final renewal of all things. But at this particular wedding, a problem arises. The wine runs out. Now, running out of wine was not just inconvenient, but a social disaster and a disgrace at this time in history. The family would have to live with the shame of it for a really long time to come, and it's likely that the bride and groom would think of it as like bad luck on their marriage. So there's anticipation and there's expectation. The wine is gone, but Jesus is there. Something is going to happen. Um, I doubt any of you in here, except maybe this section over here, are old enough to remember the golden days of Michael Jordan, okay? But bear with me. I was just a kid, but I remember watching basketball with my dad. And I will never forget, there was this sense of anticipation when when Michael Jordan stepped into the game. When he stepped on the court, everyone kind of leaned in with expectation. We knew that something spectacular was going to happen, right? He never disappointed when Jordan was on the floor, incredible plays, amazing shots, the leadership that his team needed in that moment, he provided all of that, right? His fans anticipated and Jordan delivered, right? To stretch the analogy just a little bit, just a little bit, (laughs) whenever Jesus shows up in the gospel accounts, we can expect something to happen. We can lean forward a little, waiting to see what Jesus is going to do or what he's going to say and how then what he does and what he says actually changes things. And here in John 2, right, something does happen, but it's not immediately. First, we see a very simple and I just think such a profound demonstration of faith Mary what does she do right the mother of Jesus discovers that the wine is gone I can relate to Mary so much I would just be like I'm going to fix this problem right and she's empathizing with the the bridegroom and the bride and she's probably feeling their embarrassment and she's like uh Jesus the wine is gone and he responds to her in a way that might seem actually kind of harsh to us right woman what does that have to do with me my time has not yet come And what he meant by that is that his full glory was going to be revealed in his death and his resurrection. But what does Mary do? Does she just like shrug and walk away? No. She says to the servants nearby, I don't know what he's going to do, but just do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. Isn't this a beautiful and simple declaration of faith? Sometimes I think our faith could be summarized in the same way, right? Perhaps big decisions weigh on us or we feel perplexed by a situation or a relationship is hard. Maybe all we see actually are problems and the solutions seem far away. So like Mary, we have an option here. (laughs) Do we go the way of the self and try to fix it ourselves, right, like more knowledge, more sleep, more exercise, better grades, better resume? Or do we take it to Jesus? And then do we listen and do we lean in with expectation to do whatever he tells you? Something's gonna happen when Jesus is there. Just do whatever he tells you. So next, we see Jesus do something, but it's so unexpected. He doesn't simply like speak a word to replenish the wine. He doesn't even take the wine and like give thanks and then it multiplies and then he distributes it, right? Like he does with the loaves and fishes a couple chapters later. Instead, he leans over and finds the people most hidden at the party, the servants, the seemingly unimportant ones with no reputations, social capital or economic status. Jesus could have easily solved this problem on his own with a word or even a thought, but he does not. Instead, he dignifies the lowliest by inviting them into the process. Jesus saw the servants. He approached them as image bearers and they became actually key, narr- key characters in this narrative. He includes them in his first miracle and he welcomes them as participants in the work of making things new and ushering in the kingdom of God. And this part of the narrative then brings us right back around to that original question, right? And it really is hopeful for me because it reminds me that my effectiveness in making things new alongside Jesus, it is not based on my status and my success, on my achievements and on my accomplishments, but on his love for me and his desire to include me in his kingdom work. And Jesus' instructions were simple, weren't they? What did he tell the servants to do? Fill the jars with water. Fill the jars with water. Now the jars are yet another pointing finger. All right, We are told in the text that these jars were used for the Jewish purification rites. And so many have interpreted the stone water jars used for ceremonial washing as sort of symbols of traditional Jewish rites and rituals, which at this time had become lifeless and empty, just tradition for many of the Jews with no meaning. So here, the finger is pointing to the fact that Jesus is finally bringing life even to dead rituals. He is transforming empty ritual, which is the water, into feasting and plenty and restoration. The wine. He is ushering in the new kingdom. But this is the thing. This transformation actually only happens when someone takes Mary's words seriously. And we see the servants doing just that, right? They lug those gigantic 30 gallon, huge heavy stone jars down to the river or wherever they were getting water and they fill them but john gives us this amazing detail they don't just sort of fill them or fill them halfway it says that they filled them to the brim they did exactly what jesus told them to do and they did it fully complete obedience no reservations no questions asked And here's the thing, filling jars with water was something these guys did without recognition all the time. It was heavy and hard labor. It was wet and muddy work. They were probably rarely acknowledged or thanked, sliding by to yet another unnoticed task. And yet Jesus decides to use this normal, messy, unexciting job to bring redemption to the party and to point to the ultimate redemption that he was beginning The servants obeyed immediately and without question. It was a simple, mundane task done with unhindered, faithful obedience. Filling jars with water was not inherently miraculous, but that was the way that Jesus did things. Think about the stories we know from the Gospels. The unfathomable God chose to do things in fathomable ways. He turned water into wine. He used dirt and saliva to make a blind man see. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed the hungry. He used nets on the particular side of the boat for a miracle catch of fish. And he shared bread and wine with his closest friends to help them grasp the deepest extent of his love for us. But what's more is that the Son of God came into this world and did very ordinary work himself. Tish Harrison Warren puts it this way. In this dark world where men and women were dying, where the poor were suffering, where injustice raged in a vast and violent empire, God became flesh and built some furniture. The light came into the darkness and did ordinary work. I love that. The light came into the darkness and did ordinary work. Jesus became a carpenter. For decades, he worked with his hands, building furniture. It was the way of Jesus, taking ordinary, earthy, common elements and using them to bring redemption as far as the curse is found. And then we see in verse 11 that as a result, what happened? His disciples believed in him and he manifested his glory just some servants and some jars and some water mixed with faithful, hopeful obedience. So as we close, maybe it'd be helpful for us to think about those jars and the simple instructions that Jesus gave to normal people. Let's connect the dots for a second. He invited those often overlooked servants to participate in his first miracle. His first sign of the redemption that is to come, that he was ushering in. And now, through the Holy Spirit, his spirit, who indwells us, Jesus calls us to something similar as he invites us to participate in the work of making all things new. And he simply asks us to fill our jars with water wherever we find ourselves on a daily basis. He wants to use our common stuff, money, networks, your education, your friendships, your abilities, and your talents, and your time, our jars. And just as the servants faithfully and abundantly, they filled them to the brim, right? They did something that they do every day, filled some old stone jars with water. Jesus wants us to bring him our daily duties. Think about your day, what do you do on a daily basis? Maybe it's work study or writing papers or the time you spend in prayer or meals with friends or resolving conflict on the hall, studying, serving the church, babysitting, cooking, cleaning, reading his word, laughing, playing. When we do, when we faithfully do the things that Jesus has put in front of us to do, when we are faithful with the seemingly simple, mundane and ordinary responsibilities, we see that Jesus takes those things and he manifests his glory as he turns water into wine. Our faithful work infused with the power of the Holy Spirit pushes back darkness just a little more in our corner of the world. This story, it brings me hope And it brings me a really much-needed perspective often. And maybe halfway through the semester, you will benefit from this perspective as well. We might feel tired, and we might feel, we might have numerous places where it feels like our work is going unnoticed or under, unappreciated, or at least maybe we operate under the impression that we need to be doing large things, famously, as fast as we can to be significant that we can only find value in the loud and the noticeable. But John 2 reminds us that our part in the kingdom of Jesus, the part in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing about, the new heavens and the new earth, it more often than not involves small, overlooked things over a long period of time. Let's just fill our jars with water. Okay, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this morning and for the time that we have to spend reflecting on the work that you have done, the work that you've begun in our lives. Thank you for Jesus, for the work that he's doing and making all things new. And thank you for inviting us into that process and for delighting to use our ordinary stuff in ordinary places. We ask, Lord, that you give us the strength to be faithful and to be obedient.